Health by Heather Hirsch, a podcast dedicated to uncovering many of the women's health issues many of us are wondering about, but few of us are talking about. My mission is to expose the current gaps in knowledge and care on all things women's health. Enjoy. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Health by Heather Hirsch. Today, I have a guest with me who I'm very excited to have recently met because she is so knowledgeable on so many women's health topics. So let's welcome today Dr. Louise King. She is an assistant professor at the Brigham and Women. She's the director of research of minimally invasive gynecologic surgery. She's also the director of reproductive bioethics and teaches a first-year ethics class at Harvard Medical School. So you wear many, many hats as well as being a clinician. So thank you so much for joining me today. Today we are going to talk all about endometriosis, a very, very common condition in women across their reproductive span and can really truly affect their quality of life and their overall functioning. So we're really excited to just get into this this broad topic today. So welcome and thank you so much. I always like to start by asking what got you in, interested in women's health and in particular uh, reproductive uh, surgery and all of the many hats that you wear? Oh, wow. Well, thank you so much for having me on today. I'm so excited to talk to you. It's a little bit of a long story, but I'm not going to go for the long version. I'll go for the short one. But I, as you know, I was a lawyer before I was a doctor and I worked in pro bono uh, legal work. So I would give free, I organized free legal services. And I saw that a lot of the people who were coming for free legal services were women who didn't have good access to contraceptive care or health care or women's health care. And then that prompted me to go to med school, and I was really interested in advocacy and healthcare around women's rights. And as I was doing my residency, I saw that there was a real need for advanced surgical care and access to advanced surgical care for women, that there was a bit of a disconnect between what was available to male patients and women patients, and actually almost most exclusively in endometriosis and difficult issues around fibroids and large things, you know, that kind of stuff. So that's what pushed me in that direction was women's rights and finding this niche within surgery that, that really needed some help. Plus, I love surgery. Surgery is a blast. So. That's so funny. Many of my listeners may know I started my residency in, in OBGYN and found that I really preferred sitting in consulting and doing all the talking. So we will leave the surgery to you. And, <laughs> um, but what an awesome perspective you have, both that legal background and as well as your deep, rich medical background, I can really see how you'd be, you know, a great leader for the uh, ethics class and just for women's health in general. Yeah, the ethics is super fun, especially when we get to teach the first year med students, they come in and they have so many questions. And so. such a revolving, you know, situation we were just talking before we started about, you know, social media and professionalism in that yeah. area. So, so let's talk a little bit about endometriosis. What is the basic definition of endometriosis and about how many women uh, have endometriosis? So endometriosis is when the cells that should normally exist within your uterus and that swell up and bleed every month. Those little cells can be found in other places in your body. They can be found in the muscle tissue of the uterus itself. They can be found in the abdomen around the fallopian tubes, the ovary, the pelvic sidewalls. 
the peritoneal lining, which is just the, the very thin lining that covers your entire abdomen. And when they're in these other spots, they still respond every month to the different hormone fluctuations we naturally have. And then they swell and they bleed. And your body isn't supposed to have bleeding there. So it reacts and says, whoa, and it starts sending all these different immune cells after the, the areas that shouldn't be there. And what we think happens is that some people are able to clear those uh, lesions pretty easily. So I personally don't have endometriosis. And so my natural killer T cells and other cells, macrophages, these are just different types of immune cells, can go after those endometrial cells and clear them. And it's not a big deal. But my daughter, who I have her permission to talk about this, who does have endometriosis, uh, her cells don't react the same way. So she has lesions in her body that are endometriotic implants that have since been treated surgically. And because of that, she had pain during her menstrual cycles because there was bleeding and the body was reacting to that pain. About 4 to 12% of reproductive age women, and so that's from middle school, like 12, you know, 11, 12, all the way up into the menopause, will have endometriosis. It might be a higher number because it can be a silent disease for some people. It's, it definitely affects that many people, and they present with pain and sometimes with infertility. You know, I'm interested in how you dissect out a story from a particularly an adolescent or someone who just started their period. So many young women do report pain. Of course, pain is subjective. So how do you go about an evaluation, you know, I guess not just for an adolescent or someone who's on the younger side, but how do you go about an evaluation when pain with our cycle can be normal? Absolutely. So some pain with your cycle is normal. Maybe a little bit of cramp one or two days of your cycle, it's pretty well controlled with ibuprofen. Frankly, anything beyond that is probably not normal. And so one thing that we do, um, there's another group that works on this, is try to educate middle school nurses. Because so frequently we do tell young girls, you know, they're missing school or right. they're, you know, doubled over in the nurse's office. And we're like, well, that's just your period. That's not your period. So at that moment, that would be the ideal time to be evaluated. That young when it first starts. Like I mentioned, sometimes it's silent. So I do meet some women who don't have pain at all, and we find it incidentally because, for example, they, get, they can't get pregnant. We can get back to that. But any woman who has pain during their menstrual cycle that is so severe that they're not able to meet whatever their daily life goals are, that's, we've got to address that somehow. That is, that's the criteria. And then we'll do different things, imaging, um, I'll, I'll deeply get into not just the pain symptoms that are um, happening around the pelvic gynecologic organs, but also any GI, you know, bowel issues, anything with urinary issues, any pelvic pain that's radiating like sciatic type pain down the back of your buttocks. Um, pain with intercourse is a very common complaint. So all of that, we get into a really, really big history to try to define it all. Imaging with ultrasound actually doesn't show endometriosis very often. So another problem I see when I see patients, by the way, it, it's usually that I'm usually seeing patients after they've already seen five, six, or seven on average other physicians who've told them there's nothing there. And then I talk to them and it turns out it's endometriosis. And sometimes that's because the pelvic ultrasounds that we get in general care don't show anything for endometriosis. So people think normal ultrasound normal, but that's not true. The ultrasound can't pick this disease up. You know, I'm, sure, I'm seeing so, some similarities, and most of my listeners know I do a lot of menopause, but there is this 
first of all, there's the social norm of just suck it up. There's a lot of sucking it up or that this is normal. There's a lot of normalizing either the pain or the experience. And I can hear in your words and see patients as well as endometriosis where they've just kind of been told to suck it up or maybe I will be the first person to put that diagnosis on their list. And they're like, well, you know, my, they've always been this bad. I've always just dealt with it. And there's also this notion of, well, there's nothing you can do, you know, you just kind of suck it up and you just kind of have to stick with it. And, you know, there's nothing that you should really do, or there's nothing that you can do. How often do you find stories like that where, uh, and women are just dismissed throughout that cycle, that they finally come to you so relieved to get to have this diagnosis in some way, even though it's not necessarily a good thing. Unfortunately, that's the majority of my practice. And like I said, I mean, there are multiple studies that show that about, that on average, endometriosis patients see seven doctors before they get a diagnosis. Wow, seven? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's absurd because we all learn about endometriosis in, in medical school. We all know what it is. And so, yet somehow still this, there is this propensity to tell women, oh, pain is normal. You just have to live with it. It's, it's not. You know, I and mean, there's always something we can do. There's yeah. always something. Uh, let's review. What's normal pain with your period? I would characterize, I mean, I don't think there's anything, any study that's actually defined this, by the way, but from my decade more experience, yeah. if you're having cramps, maybe one or two days of your menstrual cycle, and you can control those with heat packs and some ibuprofen, and you can still go about your day, you're fine. Anything beyond that, in my opinion, is not normal. And even if that doesn't mean that we're going to eventually diagnose you with endometriosis, we should find other ways to control your pain. There are TENS units. There are ways that we can control pain with hormones. There's all kinds of things we can do. But if, if two days of every month you're on the bed and curled up, that's, you know, multiply that out. That's 24 days or almost a full month of every year that you've just thrown away to misery. That's, that's not acceptable to me. So anybody who has pain to that level should be evaluated try to explore what we can do to control that pain. That might not mean endo, but, yeah. but you know, that's, that's not normal. We shouldn't accept that as normal. Wow. So you said ultrasound isn't the best way to garnish this diagnosis. What other modalities do you use to help either rule in or rule out endometriosis? There's a lot of work being done to create better ultrasound techniques. And there's a great group out of Australia that actually they're ultrasounds can diagnose endometriosis. Oh, but, really? But wow. It's a really, really high tech uh, level of, of imaging. So it's not become mainstream yet. MRIs can sometimes pick up endometriosis, but that's a very expensive test. And typically we don't go that route because it's not really necessary to be made. Oh, I should say there's lots of research being done, especially out at UCSF and maybe some newer studies that are going to start here to try to identify proteomic markers. So maybe we'll have wow. a blood test for it at some point. Wow. Yeah, that would that be really That is cool. really exciting. I've been I, working on that for a while. I say we, I'm not involved. I'm in you know, the medical community. Right, exactly. Uh, but the gold standard, the way to diagnose it is for myself or somebody with my training to do a laparoscopic surgery. It's just a small incision in the belly button, the camera inside, and we look around. The reason it should be somebody with my level of experience or training you know, anybody who's done a fellowship or who operates frequently in endometriosis is because when we see it, then we'll treat it. You don't want to just see it and then walk away. You want to see the disease and treat it. And so 
uh, it'll be great to have screening tests like blood tests and, and stuff like that. But ultimately, typically patients with endometriosis will end up having surgery at some point in their lives. Mm -hmm. And it should be a surgery that where the surgeon is skilled enough to really treat the disease and not just document it. Yeah. So when you say treat the disease, I'm assuming, but I want to clarify, you mean with a procedure at the time of surgery? Yeah. Okay. So we still do it laparoscopically, the little camera and the belly button, and maybe two to three other small incisions, none bigger than five millimeters. Some people call it keyhole surgery, really, really small. Yeah. And all of the lesions, there's a, something like 12 to 14 different described appearances of endometriosis. Lesions. Wow. They can be, they can look like powder burns, like somebody, you know, like black. They yeah. can be kind of red. They can be bleeding at the time of surgery. They can be white, or sometimes we say those are burned out. They're more yeah. like fibrosis or like a scarring. Mm -hmm. um, but all those different types of lesions, when you can safely do so, should be removed. So mm -hmm. we use um, electricity, which is used in surgery to, to create different uh, cuts that are really safely done. And we cut all the disease out, but retain all the you know, important organs intact. What is the role of medical management either? I guess you can address, you know, before someone goes to surgery. So mm -hmm. for example, someone like me, if I suspect endometriosis, I might use medical management. And for our listeners, we'll get into what that is. So not only what is that, but do you think that's a good thing to do first? Or since surgery is what we call the gold standard, do you think that that we, we should be doing it the other way? What are your thoughts on controlling it without surgery? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the success rates of controlling endometriosis with just medical management are pretty low, especially if somebody's presenting with pain. Okay. So I always try to set people's expectations for that, but it's, it's absolutely a choice. And certainly for our younger patients, if we catch young girls earlier on um, in middle school, we start with medicine there. We start with just oral birth control, mm -hmm. using the hormones in birth control, not for the birth control per se, but to treat the disease. And it doesn't treat it like make it go away. It just decreases the, it sort of evens out the natural uh, diurnal system of estrogen and progesterone so that that natural monthly up and ebb and flow of estrogen and progesterone, we make it steady state. And by doing that, the lesions of the endometriosis inside the body aren't swelling and bleeding as much. And mm -hmm. so you feel less pain, mm -hmm. but it doesn't make those things go away. Ah, I see. So it's going to band-aid it a little bit. It's a little, it's a little bit of a band-aid, but it's especially with young women. If they feel better on the birth control and they can move forward in their lives um, and get back to, you know, whatever volleyball or whatever they're doing, um, that's much better than taking them out for surgery. Although surgery is only a one-week recovery, so it's not that big of a deal. Either. Yeah. I wish there wasn't so much, you know, when we hear the word birth control pills, and I always say I hate that name, right? I wish we could yeah. just call them continuous estrogen progesterone pills. There's so much connotation that if you're on birth control pills, either for the patient or for the parent, it means they're having sex. And we can also talk about if, right. you know, right. that's right or wrong. But I, 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 I see that as such a barrier so many times, just the use of the word, that phrase, birth control pills, because in my opinion, their side effect is they prevent you from ovulating, but they have so many other usages, and I use them all the time for migraine control, for perimenopause control, and you use it for endometriosis. I wish that there was some, some way we could socially get around that whole idea that the name birth control pills means that you're sexually active. Absolutely. And I typically introduce it as 
we might need to start some hormones. The easiest way to get your hands on these is to buy birth control, but if that's not what we're using it for. Um, I also tend to equate, you know, I mean, these are just hormones, just like I could give you thyroid if you needed more thyroid. You know, we're just trying to even things out. Yeah. I do find that a lot of my endometriosis patients have pretty severe side effects on, birth, on combined estrogen and progesterone. Mm-hmm. And we try a lot of different variations, but frequently the side effects can be, can be really difficult, especially if they have mood disturbances on them. Yeah. And we give it three months and sometimes it resolves, sometimes it doesn't. But yeah. um, I take that very seriously. So I think a lot of times in the same way that we tell people, oh, everybody has pain, just suck it up. We say, oh, no, you know, birth control doesn't, or, you know, estrogen and progesterone don't really cause mood disorders. So some people, they really do. Are there other treatments for endometriosis, in your opinion, that are sufficient that uh, can also be used? Yeah. So typically I, I advise people to give, a, give estrogen and progesterone a shot. The Mirena IUD, which has progesterone in it, can be helpful for some people with really, really low-level disease, although it's considered second line because it's not systemically suppressing anything, but it releases the progesterone locally in the uterus. Um, progesterone-only pills can be helpful. If you're going to move from there into some of the much stronger medicines, I really, really strongly advise having surgery before we go on to and, and documenting the disease and treating it surgically before you move on to the much stronger medicines. Mm-hmm. But beyond those are GnRH agonists and antagonists. So medications that, that act at the level of the pituitary in your brain and give your body the idea that you don't need to make estrogen anymore. And so they make you perimenopausal. Mm-hmm. So as I know you're well aware, the side effect profile on that is really, really high. So that's why I tell people before you go into these medicines that are so, so strong, let's be sure we know what we're dealing with and let, yeah. give me a shot at treating it for you and see where we end up. Maybe we'll reset the clock back and you'll be back on the oral contraceptive tissue. What is um, the success rate of surgery? As not great. As- yeah. Oh, um, no. Well, first of all, you were just about to say as best as I can tell you, and that's such yeah. an important thing because there's so little funding for uh, research into women's health that we don't have any good studies. In my own practice, as best I can tell, because not everybody comes back to me for follow-up, um, I have a pretty good success rate. I can get people well-controlled um, in their pain and back into their everyday lives almost always to some degree or another. Mm-hmm. And then that has a last effect as long as we can keep some sort of hormonal control going because the surgery is not curative either if if you just do surgery and then don't also consider adding back in some hormones um, to keep the disease from growing back it probably will grow back most of the time people have disease that comes back mm-hmm. and in my own practice the vast majority of patients have been have done very very well but I'm pretty aggressive about getting them we do surgery, but I try really hard to help them to understand that the surgery is not a cure. I, you know, I can be as aggressive as I can be, but the pain may come back and the disease may continue to grow over time. Why is it, since you have such a great background and I'd love to hear your opinion, why is it that there is no research for this? Why is it that there is no research for some of the really important women's health topics? Um, I don't know. I wish I knew. Um, I'm working with another colleague right now or we're just creating ways to look at the research landscape and, and really visualize it because I think it's almost also that people don't realize there's very little money for this. 
The NIH doesn't fund, if you just compare urology and, and uh, gynecology, the urology research is funded either through the NIH or through FDA and, you know, studies of medications at two times, I think, at least the rate of mm -hmm. gynecologic stuff. Wow. Um, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of research in, well, even there, there's not as much as there should be, but there's a lot more research in maternal fetal issues and obstetrics and stuff like that. And that's, that's a factor throughout my discipline. There's mm -hmm. a ton of focus on obstetrics, mm -hmm. even though that typically represents only five years on average of any woman's life mm -hmm. is dedicated to reproduction in that way. Mm -hmm. um, tons yeah. of research there. There's tons of research in IVF in part because it's privately funded, not through yeah. insurance, stuff like that. Right. But for the basic stuff of women's lives, um, fibrous bleeding, endometriosis, prolapse, and menopause, <laughs> there is not enough uh, research money. NIH um, definitely is working on that. Um, I've had all kinds of great conversations with the heads over at NIH who focus on gynecology. So they really want to try to increase um, research into the, the daily nitty gritty problems of people's lives to make their mm -hmm. lives better. Yeah. But, you know, we think about the quality of life women must suffer. Again, you mentioned, for example, you know, having being bedridden for two days of the month being almost, you know, a month of a year, yeah. but that might not even be the most severe endometriosis. And this probably affects people's sexual function, their mm -hmm. marriage, their, you know, I'm sure when we stack this up to other chronic diseases, hypertension, diabetes, sleep apnea, depression, you know, those rates of quality of life are probably similar, right? We don't have mm -hmm. probably yet that research, but just so important. These diagnoses are so important. They impact people's lives so much. Uh, yeah. What do you think? about? I, that? Oh, I totally agree with you. I agree with you completely. I, the, um, you know, I mean, I, I would even venture so far to say is everything around chronic pain, both men and women, um, is poorly funded and poorly studied. Yeah. And, um, you know, I mean, those areas of medicine are, it's very hard to come up with real solutions for people sometimes. Mm -hmm. So maybe it just reflects um, a level of frustration with how little we, we know already, you know, mm -hmm. but that should instead inspire us to just do more work, right? right. There's got to be solutions. There's got to be ways to help people with pain um, that aren't narcotic based, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so most of my patients do come to me and they're in a much worse state than just the person I was describing earlier who might just be having some pain two days out of a month. Typically, by the time people come to see me, they're describing a week out of every month or maybe even two weeks out of every month that is non-functional. They've lost their job. Their relationship has ended. They, um, you know, they're on disability you know, mm -hmm. to, get to that point before I get to see them. And bringing them back from there I'll probably never get them back to where they could have been, which is really heartbreaking to, to know and to see. But um, that's so much work. And I can only do a tiny fraction of it. The work that they're going to have to do to get themselves back um, mm -hmm. in terms of pelvic floor therapy, which I'm sure you send a lot of people to pelvic floor therapy. Mm -hmm. um, but that's really time intensive with a lot of exercises and stuff, changing your diet, losing weight, exercise, all these things that will help, but it's a lot of time investment. And they've reached that point after seven, eight, nine, ten 10 doctors have said, Oh, well, this is normal. You'll just have to, there's nothing I can do to help you. And so 
you know, we're failing people, a, a cross-section of people in that regard. And we just need to do better. What do you think the, do you think that the answer to how to not fail people, do you think it is on the part of the, 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 the clinician's play? Do you think it's on the patient being uh, more, you know, advocating for themselves? I'm thinking of this commercial you may have seen where the girl goes in to see the doctor and she's holding her stomach and her internal monologue is like, say something, say something, say something. And she never does. And of mm -hmm. course, I, I don't mean to blame the patient, but where do you think the solution to better help people understand and to help clinicians understand lies? That's a great question. I think that's the Orlissa commercial, which is one of the GNRH uh, and either the agonist or antagonist. I can't remember, but those are the strong, strong medicines that I wouldn't go for first. But um, um, it's still a great commercial because it will encourage people to say something. So I'm super happy about that. Yeah. I, I agree with you. I don't want to put it too much on patients to fix a problem that we clearly have created. I mean, we shouldn't have a uh, workforce, um, both physicians, nurse practitioners, everybody who's going to be front lines to see patients who aren't picking up on endometriosis. Um, but I don't know. I mean, we do a lot of, we have a, uh, all of the month of March is devoted to endometriosis awareness month. We have a, um, a big rally every year in March in every uh, a major city of every state and around the world to try to raise awareness amongst our providers. I think it's, you know, with all the effort that's gone into it, that it's still, it's improving, but very, very slowly. I think it gets back to the thing we talked about at the beginning, where we tend to look at women and be like, Meh, you know, that's just life, deal with it. And mm -hmm. that's where we really need to change things. Mm -hmm. You know, our focus, uh, there's, there's a group of people that think we should be called gynobes. Like our focus should be on improving women's lives from the time that they're um, adolescents all the way through their menopausal state. And that that's the big, the big focus. Absolutely. We want, I don't mean in any way to diminish the importance of obstetrical health and the issues we have around maternal mortality. But frankly, a lot of those come from not taking care of women before they get pregnant. So we really need to be focused on, mm -hmm. you know, making sure that women have productive, pain-free, beautiful lives, lives. You know, fulfilled. And, you know, that's got to be the thing. And if, if anybody is suffering more than a little bit in any of it, you know, every single month, that's just not okay. We, we, we're, it's 2020. We can fix that. So, so I think I, it's that. I want to ask you a question. You mentioned that you mentioned that the patient that gets to see you after so many years, she's been suffering. Does, is there a role for early surgical intervention or just earlier intervention with a skilled physician? Does that make a difference? Oh yeah, absolutely. So there's another typical story that I hear where someone was caught when they were young, they um, were in their teens and somebody realized that their pain was bad and did start them on estrogen and progesterone. And they're like, and I took those medicines from the time I was 16 until I was 22. But then I thought I should just I should come off them. And then all of a sudden I was in pain. So I meet that patient sometimes. Mm -hmm. It's strange is that they come off of the estrogen progesterone and then are in pain. And then they go through like two years of people telling them they can't figure out what the pain is until they come to me. Um, but yeah, there, if, 
if they had just stayed on it until they on the estrogen and the progesterone until they decided it was time for them to conceive or mm -hmm. whatever they want to do with their lives, mm -hmm. um, then we wouldn't have had to meet. So mm -hmm. you, it can be controlled and that would be the ideal. There's also a lot of research that I'm involved in um, trying to see if there might be ways that we can upregulate the immune response. If you remember the beginning, I was talking about how it's something to do with the immune response not being good enough or being too good, or we're not sure which one, but how, you know, we need to further define that and do a lot of basic research. Because the ideal would be that you put me out of business, right? That we can catch people with blood tests when they're very young and that we have some sort of treatment that just makes this all go away without mm -hmm. me having to do anything. That would be the best thing. Yeah. Wow. Very fascinating. Well, I'm so excited to see how that all like, rolls out. So how does endometriosis affect infertility? That's a great question. As with my answer to everything we don't know. <laughs> Sorry. Um, no, we, I think it just solidifies how much we should know about something know. that is yeah. fairly prevalent. And then for those who do have it. Yeah. And it's weird because there are women that I've delivered um, back when I still did obstetrics by C-section. They clearly had like stage four of four endo, but they got pregnant on their own. Mm -hmm. And then I'll meet women who um, have are, you know, clinically infertile, can't conceive there's nothing we can figure out that's wrong. We do a surgery for endometriosis and then they conceive because it is known to um, increase conception rates and increase success rates with IVF to do surgery and clear the disease out. The hypothesis is if you can't find anything anatomically wrong, so endometriosis creates scar tissue in the abdomen. So, you, so it can create infertility by blocking tubes. But if the fallopian tubes are open and there should be a conduit for a conception to happen with the egg leaving the ovary, going through the tube and being fertilized in the tube and then making its way to the uterus, if those tubes are open but someone is still not becoming pregnant or becoming pregnant and then losing the pregnancy early, six, eight weeks losses, um, we think what it is is what some people have described as a hostile environment, which to me, that's kind of a little aggressive way to describe it. But, um, no one on, wants to know their uterus as a know, hostile so I, environment. I don't actually use that term that often, but, but that is what a lot of people say. But basically, you're inflamed. You know, this disease creates inflammation, and, and maybe that inflammation has reached a certain level, yeah. and your body's just not allowing for implantation of the embryo. Mm -hmm. So what we find is if somebody is in unexplained infertility, is failing IVF cycles, they, I have a number of patients who are referred to me for that situation. We do the surgery for endometriosis, and then they go back, and typically the implantation is successful. Yeah, fascinating. Zero there, but really, <laughs> those are some of the easiest cases I do. Um, but well, I'm sure many works. women would love to know that. That's, yeah, those that's are very easy cases because yeah. typically the disease isn't that advanced, but it's just holding them back in some way. So you just sort of push them over the edge so that things work out. That's nice. It's nice to have those wins and see happy people. Yeah. And well, then I always get the baby. Those are really, really fun because I get the baby pictures and, you know, it's always so exciting. It's also great when um, I have patients that, you know, have seen seven, 10 doctors. I operate on them. They feel much, much better. I mean, the hugs, well, I don't get hugs anymore in COVID, but I used to get these <laughs> great hugs, you know, people being like, I had a pain-free month. You know, it's just, I know. It's, I know. it's a lot of fun.
I know. I think, I think the key is listening to women and listening to people. And I think, you know, going back to the question of, is it the clinicians, is it the patients? There's so many micro cal calculations. There's time constraints. There's embarrassment. There's back and forth. There's so many things. But when you listen to people, you can really help them. Well, and do surgery, which I don't do. <laughs> no, um, but that's a great point. Just listening is so important. What about um, now for a lot of my listeners who may be menopausal, and this is so helpful if they have daughters or nieces, but once you're in menopause, is endometriosis anything to worry about? Or, you know, does it have long lasting effects that, that we, you know, should think about or we need to consider? Well, um, we do see uh, patients presenting for pain with endometriosis in the menopause. So if they have... Uh, significant exogenous estrogen. So for example, some women who are very, very heavy will continue to make a lot of estrogen. And some of them have a lot of problems with endometriosis implants that persists into the um, menopausal state. And then just people who've had a really long history with it. I've seen where we, we've taken out, basically we've taken everything out and yet they're still having some lesions that are responding. Mm -hmm. Um, it because you know, in some of the most difficult cases, um, we will remove the uterus and the ovaries even fairly early for women. But then, um, notably, it's still important to try to find some amount of estrogen add back that we can do so that they're not completely lacking in estrogen given all the different health risks that come from an earlier menopause. So, it's still an issue, it's not nearly as big an issue as it is for reproductive age women. Mm -hmm. But if you have significant pain, and especially if you've had a history of endometriosis, even if you're a postmenopausal patient, that's still something that should be thought about. It's still mm -hmm. a possibility. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I know for me, when I see a postmenopausal patient who has had a hysterectomy, typically they need estrogen only and they don't need a progesterone because to protect their intact uterus and their uterus is, is gone. You don't need to get them the progestin except for my patients who have endometriosis. I often find even if they don't need the progestin, in the case that they have endometrial implants somewhere, I still will give them a progestin for a while, then maybe take them off and see, because if they're mm -hmm. not having pain, they may, they don't need it. But I, 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 I too, I agree. I think it, you know, anytime a woman's health condition happens, be it gestational hypertension or postpartum depression or endometriosis, it's something that shouldn't like resolve, you know, mm -hmm. once you're 47 or 50, yeah, it should always yeah. be thought about because yeah. Again, as you mentioned, we still d don't know what we don't know. So there's yeah, so much to learn. Absolutely. And it, it really upsets me too when um, I have patients referred to me who had a full surgery in terms of uterus and ovaries removed. And then they were told, and you can never have estrogen. I'm like, no, 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 <laughs> not that. No, <laughs> you can, you just have to be careful and we have to pay attention to you. And, but exactly, but you can you know, and they're like, I can't have estrogen and now I can't have sex and I can't even use vaginal estrogen. I'm like, vaginal estrogen is fine. That's totally fine. You know, so I'm sure you've had all these discussions. Yeah, of course. I mean, there's so many myths and misconceptions around the use of hormone therapy and there's social myths that get these campfire stories that just go down and down and then tele telephone and get totally warped. Um, but yes, I see so many patients who postmenopausally do take estrogen progesterone replacement and thinking about birth control pills, you know, postmenopausal doses are, are much, much lower mm -hmm. uh, than what's in birth control pills. So we're giving a ton 
tiny level of estrogen that's satisfying those receptors in your brain and exactly. your heart and your gut and your bones, et cetera, that are looking for estrogen. And those are the patients that I will also sometimes give some progesterone as well, just in the case that they have implants uh, or that, you know, some of the endometrial tissue, I don't want to reactivate it, but yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It is not a contraindication at all to the use of hormone. Absolutely. hundred percent true. The craziest case of endometriosis I ever saw was endometrial tissue and a lung biopsy. Oh yeah. 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 So it can affect the lung. Um, I did a case just the other day where I incidentally found it on the diaphragm right up under the ribs. So I can, I can treat that. So I treated that. Wow. And in the lung, we sometimes um, operate with our colleagues from cardiothoracic surgery and they do a VATS, which is the camera inside the lung. And we can ablate or burn the lesions on the lung. Typically, we don't have to actually excise a portion of the lung, but you can ablate them on the lung. Mm -hmm. And those lesions present, um, not, not incidentally, we don't typically stumble upon them, but instead, uh, unfortunately, they present by people either collapsing their lung because the bleeding collapses the lung. Um, and so they end up with a pneumothorax, unable to breathe, severe pain, um, or hemoptysis, coughing up blood during your um, menstrual cycle. Those are the two signs that you might have endometriosis in your lungs. Very rare. Very rare. But imagine rare. how many clinicians would probably miss that, thinking about an etiology of endometriosis with you know, a collapsed lung. Yeah. And I also very commonly saw it in um, colon biopsies. So I'm sure yeah. you sort of see this cyclic pain also going along with maybe food aversions or abdominal pain pretty commonly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it definitely can affect the bowel frequently. And the optimal management of endometriosis on the bowel is not perfectly known, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> this has been my answer for everything. Um, but uh, it can be managed surgically. So we can either um, shave it off of the bowel, disc excise, or you know, create a little small area that we cut out of the bowel, or actually do a full bowel resection. Um, because the complication rates for bowel surgery are slightly higher, so into like the early 10% range, as compared to my complication rates for other aspects of endosurgery, which are less than 1%, um, then you know, I usually say to patients, why don't we define what the problem is before we go aggressively to operate on your bowel? And if it's going to be a bowel resection, um, we'll have colorectal do the bowel resection or, and work with us. So collaborating with uh, other, you know, they do a ton of surgery on the bowel, it's much better to have them do a resection. I could do a resection of the bowel, but it's better since they do it all the time. Right. I frequently wow. take out the appendix. I just got the path back for a patient who had a, um, endometriosis of her appendix and her pain was right-sided, which was interesting. Mm. So that's mm -hmm. another area. It's, it really, it really helps to sort of, I'm sure your patient's so satisfied to really be able to get that bird's eye view and to come away from the, you know, you just have to suffer through it and all women have this problem and you know, it's, it's, you know, you're just overreacting to be able to see that we are not small men and we have different organs and different sex hormones that affect different target tissue. Yeah. Yeah. And just the validation I think is the most important thing. I mean, sometimes my first meeting with a patient, I just listen almost the entire time and just let them tell their story and periodically say, that's not in your head. No, that's real, you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. just validate for, that's been missing for seven years, you know, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and then we start talking about what we want to do moving forward. I but I, I really do hope that the more that we do podcasts like this, the more we get the word out, the more we do March um, endometriosis month and 
all the different things that were that a lot of people around the country are trying to do to get the word out um, that people will be educated and and know. I mean, I guess it comes back to that question. We both said we don't want to put the onus on patients, but right. I would like patients to know that if somebody's not listening to you, walk out the room. There's mm. no reason to be spending your time with someone who's not going to be listening to you. Yeah. So just yeah. leave, find somebody else. Now, if uh, someone is near a large academic center, you know, how, how can somebody find the right doctor for them? What's your advice, I guess? Well, I used to give different advice, but now that we can do this, right, anybody can consult with me anytime they want. And similarly with other experts around the country and even around the world, because this is becoming much, much easier way to have a consult. I mean, I don't need to examine someone if to be able to talk to them about, about everything that I've talked to you about. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, at the Brigham, we have uh, the ability to have a consult with anybody around the world. And that's true of most major academic centers. Mm-hmm. Might not be that you end up coming to have your surgery with us, but at least you can, everybody has access if they even just on their phone to have a consult with somebody who's an expert in, in these fields. Now Isn't that insurance, nice? insurance is willing to pay for it. So, so that's excellent because um, with that change with, with COVID, I would never wish COVID on anybody, but opening the doors to telehealth, I think is a really, really, really cool thing. I couldn't agree more. We talked about this on my last episode with um, Dr. Holly Thacker of the Cleveland Clinic about how telemedicine is so useful for, you know, menopause. So much of what we do is intellectual Mm -hmm. and listening piece is almost better over telemedicine. You really can, Mm -hmm. you know, listen to your patients, tell their story. And so I couldn't agree more. Before about like, my patients who have chronic pain talking to me from their home one the other day with her beautiful cat with her was so much more comfortable than having to drive in park, pay for it and come and see me in this cold, sterile place with an exam table. So I'm just so excited about how this might open the door to women hearing more about different options that they have and being empowered to say, well, you, know, you could talk to me or someone like me, learn all about it, and then go in and talk to your local doctor and be like, this is what I learned. Actually, I taped it here. Let's look at it together. <laughs> and this is what we could do even here in this small town that I live in. Yeah. yeah. It's so exciting. I know. I think we are living in an age, coronavirus has pushed us to do telemedicine and it's here. And it's probably here to stay. So yeah, good yeah. Well, thank you so much for letting me pick your brain all about endometriosis. Yeah, absolutely. And it sounds like we've really uncovered a couple of persistent themes. Research on women's health is especially on things that are non-obstetrics related. You know, chronic diseases, chronic pain, menopause need to be researched more. And there's so much more to women than the narrative of suck it up and this is normal. And, you know, lastly, that, that, that change that revolution. Definitely. I think clinician education is a part of it, but also that's the whole reason I started this podcast and my YouTube. And I love educating patients is to just help educate patients Mm -hmm. and break down those either taboo topics or those myths about women's health and, and, and how it affects our lives. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much. I love talking to you. It's great. Where can people find you? At the Brigham. All right. If you go onto the Brigham website and look for my last name, King, I should pop up. 
Wonderful. I will link your like Brigham link below. And if anyone wants to see you or request a consult with you, it's so exciting because you can do that. Well, thank you. Thank you again. So thank you so much. And I will talk to you again soon. Okay. All right. Bye. Bye.